Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to DSR Branding Presents. Join me as I interview brilliant business leaders on branding, marketing, design, and good business principles. These are people who think differently and have commercialized their creativity to do something remarkable. Today's episode is on sports marketing with Andrew McShay. Andrew is a management consultant and co-founder of Play Sports Marketing, a leading sports consultancy firm. He's the former general manager of Queensland Cricket and the Brisbane Heat. Having spent nine seasons with the Brisbane Heat, Andrew talks about how the Big Bash League grew from being an idea to becoming one of the most popular sporting codes in Australia. We discuss game day activations and off-field entertainment, sponsorships and dealing with social media trolls. Anyone who's followed the Big Bash League or been to a Brisbane Heat game will enjoy hearing behind-the-scenes stories about Rocketman and CUA's pool deck. We talk about other sporting codes who are doing great things, and I ask Andrew what rugby union needs to save the game in Australia. Plus, our shared love of sports documentaries, like The Last Dance and Amazon's The Test. Andrew shares some great perspective of what it takes for sports codes to succeed. This episode has some valuable lessons and great stories for not just cricket fans, but anyone who wants to understand the business of sport. Enjoy. Well, g'day, Andrew. Thanks very much for coming on the show, man. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. Mate, we always kick things off the same way, just with a simple icebreaker. So what's your favorite brand and why? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think when you think about favorite brands, you sort of straight away think about the big ones. But my favorite brand, or at least... At least one of them, but one that I was I wanted to mention to you was was it's actually um, the Livin brand, so L I V I N um, that you know you may be familiar with. I mean, these guys are just doing some great work in breaking down the stigma associated with with mental health, particularly with um, with the youth, um, and roll out some great programs across schools and in the community and, and and off the back of that they've actually created a really cool fashion um brand as well so um yeah they're sort of you know I've they're not the biggest that. brand but they're yeah. doing some great sam, work yeah. sam webb who did that yeah it is yeah sam's the the founder um i believe of, of living and um yeah i just think you know i think in that space it's actually a really cool example of um you know creating a, a brand that is um that is cool, um, and it's 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 a cool brand in a space, you know, in an area that most of us aren't really that keen to talk about. So, yeah, I, I just think it's really clever. I think it's it's really clever the way that it's it's drawing um, that youth market and sort of you know to twenty plus even um, into it. But it's got a real serious you know serious purpose. So yeah, that's probably one for me, mate, that I've really admired of late. Yeah, I agree. I think they're doing great work in sort of breaking down the stigma associated with mental health and getting young people to actually talk about that. Yeah, I remember yeah. Sam wearing a living hat when he was on Survivor a few years ago. My wife and I are big fans of the show, so we were watching him. So I got, <laughs> got exposed to it back then. And um, yeah, I, I can see he's, he's just growing. I've seen quite a few sports personalities and stuff like that supporting it as well. Yeah, no, I think it's yeah, I think it's really clever. So, um, yeah, the more of that in in different areas that you know that are really important, we have discussions about. I think the better. So, no, I think that's got a great little model there. So, um, yeah, I, I certainly got a number of items in my uh, in my wardrobe, mate, of of their apparel. I think it's cool gear. Yeah, nice. 
And Matt, on to uh, sort of the elephant in the room for sports and I guess everyone in general at the moment, COVID-19. We're recording this the beginning of June, so Australia has lifted quite a lot of the restrictions, but, um, you know, and we are seeing a bit of a return to sport on the TV. But, Matt, what is the effect of COVID on cricket? Yeah, well, I guess cricket's, you know, hasn't been immune to, to obviously, you know, the scale and, and breadth of of what's going on. You know, I think in the early days, and say the early days, probably in mid to late March, we were certainly having discussions about, you know, we're probably one of the more luckier sports just given the timings. And um, at that stage, you know, we, we sort of looked at the winter codes, you know, yeah, yeah, NRLs and AFLs and, and certainly really felt for those guys because it was sort of hit them head on. Um, a sport like cricket being a summer sport has certainly had more time to prepare. Um, but it hasn't meant that the impact's been any less so than um, the winter codes of experience. And, and I think for some people, you sort of find it hard to understand, but when you actually look at, you know, all the elements of, of what's gone on and how it's impacted not only sport but any business, um, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of debtors that, that simply won't be able to pay. Um, you know, in sport, your biggest check comes from your broadcasters and clearly broadcasting and, and advertising and the knock-on effect um, of that business has been impacted as well. Um, and then whilst we are seeing that, that events are coming back to life and, you know, I've heard in the last few days that New Zealand, as soon as this weekend, will move to full crowds at, at sporting events. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, which is great news, but still there's a lot of uncertainty around um, the future of gate takings in this country over the next sort of six months or so. So, you know, as we spoke about earlier offline, you know, this situation is changing so quickly, but, um, you know, in a month's time, it, it, it may be more certain. But at the moment, I think if you were running a sporting team or a league of any nature, you know, one of your biggest, your second biggest revenue streams is traditionally your gate takings from selling tickets. So, yeah, you, you put all that in, in, in the mixer and, and what it's meant is that cricket has ultimately been affected um, significantly um, right up there with with some of the the winter codes. Yeah. And, I mean, we've got the T20 World Cup in Australia later in the year. Do you think that will go ahead here? I think it's interesting, again, because it's been such a changing situation. If you had asked me as recently as two weeks ago, I probably would have said highly unlikely. Um, But, again, given what's happening in the last few days and, and last week or so, you know, it is moving quite quickly. So I, I would still say it's unlikely, but I think as things start to improve and as the community gains confidence from some of the, the restrictions being lifted, I, I think it's still a chance. Now, that tournament scheduled to start in, in late October, uh, early November. So, you know, given where we're early June, I, I still think they've got time to make a decision. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a World Cup, so it's, it's, you know, it's global in its nature and will require, um, you know, all the team, participating teams um, to travel to Australia and, um, yeah, hell of a lot of, of, of detail to be worked through around, um, you know, the systems and processes that are going to be put in place. But I'm hopeful that it will happen, but also realistic to think that it, it may be postponed to next year or even the following year. Yeah. And what do you think like the road back for a lot of the clubs will be? You said, you know, the way they, um, you know, a big revenue driver for them is the money made on the gates. So are there other ways that they can, um, you know, survive? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, you really need to, you know, they really need to look at locking down um, and securing what revenue they 
they have assured to them. Um, you think about sponsorship, you know, it's a really fascinating space right now. Um, you know, clearly, the, you know, you'd say it's a soft market if you're looking to to go and, um, you know, secure new partnerships. Um, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require some creative thinking. And, 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 and in saying that, there's certainly some industries that have done quite well over the last couple of months and, and no doubt sports will look to target those industries that have performed um you know, above the average. Um, but I think in the sponsorship space, you certainly want to look at, at, at securing, you know, what revenue, you know, the clubs clubs and leagues and teams have. And then, um, you know, it's really going to test the creative thinking within, within the administrative staff around, well, how can we, you know, come up with new products? Um, have we got crowds? Have we not got crowds? If we've got crowds, what do we do with our pricing? What can we do with our, our yield? Um, do we look at digital um, tickets or digital memberships? So I think, um, yeah, it, it's actually a really interesting space because as much as no one wanted this to happen, I really believe, though, that at the end of this, there'll be some some great things, particularly in the business of sport, some creative thinking that, that wasn't being done um, prior, um, but we'll, we'll come out of this and, and be some some great, fresh, new initiatives that sports will look to make money from moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's an opportunity for a lot of businesses to improve their model. Obviously, they have to become a lot more digital. Even gyms and um, you know cafes, like it's. Well, we've been going back to my gym lately, and you've got to obviously register for your details. And I mean, they should have that online anyway. But for any drop-ins and stuff like that, they've got to have a, a record of where people are from and things like that for obviously the contact tracing. Same as cafes. So if if these businesses are doing it and capturing that information well and storing it securely. I mean, it's very simple, but as, as small as, you know, a cafe building a, an email database, I mean, that's a very simple application of it. But it's probably forcing them to do things that they never would have considered. And if they can get that person to opt in, you know, that's actually growing their audience and actually growing an opportunity for them. So being forced to do these things, I mean, I'm sure you're talking about, you know, at a much higher level for these sporting teams and something a bit more sophisticated. But it just, it's cool to look at it that way as a bit of an opportunity of, you know, how can we actually learn and grow and evolve from this? No, I couldn't agree more. And it's funny you say, say that around the data collection. I was, I was literally thinking that this morning at, at the local cafe getting my coffee and, you know, I chose to sit down and, and um, jump on a laptop and filled out the, the book that they've got there and such a simple execution there to have a, you know, to have a tick box there with, you know, obviously the, the, the relevant terms and conditions. But, you know, for small businesses, it's incredibly difficult in normal times to capture data of your customers and, oh, and here we are in situation. And I look at the book, <laughs> the book, uh, you know, is, is full up of names and numbers and addresses and you think, wow, what a turn, turning, you know, a situation that we're in into a real positive um, and for that business to to think like that and capture that, that data and then start to remarket them. I mean, it's, it's a really great example of what we're talking about. Mm. Yeah. And mate, take me back into your story because you've been with the Heat, or you were with the Heat for quite a long time. I mean, were you with them from the start of um, of actually the BBL? Yeah, yeah. So my journey with the Heat started actually in uh, April two thousand eleven. So yep. to go back probably even six months prior to that, what was happening in cricket at that time was um, in October two thousand ten, a major research study was done into the health of the game in Australia and. To put it bluntly, it was it was really concerning. Um, 
the, the game had sort of meandered along. Um, a lot of the big names, your, your sort of McGraths, your Warns, your Haydens, those guys had retired. The national team was having mixed success um, and it, it, it was strong from basically 30-odd 30, 30 years to the grave. But what, what cricket wasn't doing at that time is, is it wasn't appealing to, to the, the younger market, particularly that 5- to 15-year-old market, um, and nor was it, um, appealing to a female audience. So um, huge research study was done and basically w- w- the findings were that if something wasn't done um, to attract a new audience to the game, that cricket faced a, you know, what was really described as a lost generation or the potential of a lost generation at that time. So um, fast forward another six months, decision was made quite quickly to, to expedite uh, the launch of a T20 tournament. Um, T20 cricket was was on the horizon. I think the IPL was probably two or three years old at that stage um, and it was seen as the product um, to take forward. But, um, yeah, I came on board in, in April 2011 and um, Queensland cricket at that time and, and, and what became the Heat really were proactive in, in getting behind and investing in, in this new club and, and what was ultimately a new league. And, yeah, I was really fortunate to get on board with a blank canvas and um, be a part of, you know, the, the very first decision, which was actually choosing the colour, um, which is yeah. a, a good story in itself, and then right <laughs> through to, you know, where it's become today, which is, yeah, a significant sports um, brand and, and and one that's growing. And if you come back to why was it created, um, the success around growing participation, attracting women and mums and their kids to the game, it's, it's been phenomenal. And, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly um, on one hand it feels like it's gone really quick nine years, but on the other hand when I think about how many, you know, uh, how many steps along that process has been on one hand, it feels like it's been quite a, quite a marathon as well. So no, it's, it's been a great journey and and plenty of exciting um, chapters along the way. And going back to choosing the colors, because I mean, (laughs) the heater are teal. I mean, we worked with you, I think at the time when I was at my previous agency. So I remember the launch, I think there was a few guys painted in body paint up at Mount (laughs) Cuthra or something. Was that right? Yeah, he's spot on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Lee Castledon, you mentioned Survivor. Oh, Lee yeah. Castledon. Yeah, yeah, of course. Was actually, yeah. Um, Lee at the time was uh, was still playing cricket and, and um, he was, um, I think our coach, Darren Lehman at the time, had probably said enough to Lee to, to make him think that he was going to get a, a contract with a heap. So um, <laughs> he he, he uh, agreed to, to be fully fully painted in, in, in the new colour teal. Um, oh, Lee wouldn't mind to but, get the rig out. No, well, exactly. He's in pretty good nick, isn't he? So, yeah. yeah, no, he was happy to do that. But he actually never ended up playing for the Heat. He ended up that year, I think, played for Adelaide and, and oh, retired okay. the following year. So, yeah. um, I, I do I do laugh with Lee um, uh, about his uh, his very short career. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, so the, the, the story behind the colour was really, you know, we said, well, if – if the insight behind why this is happening is 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 accurate and and obviously you know backed up with fact and data and and plenty of uh, qualitative uh, insights around where the, the game was at at that time, um, we had to make every decision. Um, every decision had to be anchored in the strategy. So, first decision was the colour, and at the time, you know, research was telling us that that one of the most popular female colours in the world um, was teal. Uh, yep. I actually think, and I remember it quite clearly, it was 
um, it was the second second most most popular colour at the time. Um, and you know, we really felt that. Well, you know, again, this has to be all about the strategy from your first decision to your last and everything in between. Big ones, small ones, everything has to be lined up to that strategy. So um, we made that decision to to go with that colour. And you know, you think about a brand like Tiffany's. I'm sure yeah. you brought your bought your your lovely partner plenty of that down over the years. Um, Mate, well, I was going to say uh, it's very reminiscent of the Tiffany blue that you guys have. It, Exactly. Uh, which, I mean, yeah. they've trademarked and, and, the Pantone, so you wouldn't have been able to get it exactly right. But yeah, that's right. No, PMS seven four six seven, I think it is, or, or, or something on those <laughs> Mate, lines. Very good. Burnt into my burnt into my brain. But um, yeah, so that that was really the the thinking. And then I think once you put a you know a stake in the ground on your first decision, like that, and and to use that analogy, a, a quite a big stake when you talk about Queensland sport. I mean, most people looked at us funny when we started to roll that out in those first few months because it was like, well, no, Queensland is maroon and Queensland's <laughs> versions of red um, yeah. and you just don't do it. But, you know, if you ever want to stand out in a crowd, well, straight away you've got that, you know, that that difference. So, yeah, that, I, I, you know, again, you, you look back and think about what were some of the key decisions and no doubt that first one was critical and really set the tone that this was going to be different and was going to appeal to a different audience. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's a really bold decision, but um, you know, one that I mean, the heat is so recognisable now, um, and I mean, you see plenty of those jerseys getting about um, on game day, but also just out and about in Brisbane City. Um, so it's it's cool to have such a recognisable colour associated with the brand. Yeah, there's something in that I reckon for sporting teams. Like, you know, you think about you think about other teams, and you know, Melbourne Storm being purple. You think about different colours. I, I think ultimately. You know, our, our decision was very much anchored behind the strategy or, 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 you know, aligned to the strategy. I think ultimately, you know, it, it will become what, what it will be anyway. So I think, you know, particularly for an, if you're attracting a new audience or a younger audience, ultimately they're, they're not too fussed about history or tradition or, mm. um, you know, the, the last three decades of, of Queensland sport. Ultimately, if, if, if they're your target market, well, they're, they're up for it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm the same. You, you know, you go for a walk and see young kids or even, you know, mums and dads or, or grandparents wearing a, a heat cap, it, it sort of, yeah, certainly solidifies that decision um, nine years ago. Yeah, that's cool. And, um, I mean, you guys, did you guys win the first one or the second one? No, we yeah, we won the second one. Um, yeah. So BBL02, um, yeah. we... Um, yeah, it was it was an interesting year. I mean, on the field, um, we have been, you know, fairly inconsistent, I think. I think we've certainly gone into most summers with a whole heap of, of hype and expectation and um yeah, it's it's been um inconsistent's probably the word. Um uh, but yeah. in that in that second tournament, second year, we uh we actually limped into fourth position on net run rate. Um and um, you might remember, but at that time, there was a Champions League, a T20 Champions League, a global tournament that basically took um, some of the best franchises from around the world and played them off in a, in a, in a global tournament um, yep. in September the following year. And so if you, if you qualified first or second um, or finished first or second in the BBL, you went through. And, and it was actually going to be the last year of that tournament before it was wound up. Um, so we we won the BBL and then got through to the Champions League. And financially, it was a huge windfall for Brisbane Heat and, and Queensland cricket at the time. And, um, yeah, the guys went on to play in that 
in that last edition of the the Champions League, which was held in India um, the following year. So, uh, no, really, uh, yeah, really fortunate to get some success. And then, um, unfortunately, haven't had much success with the men's game since. But our women's team have gone on, um, which was launched, you know, four years after the men's tournament starting. But in the last two years, the women's team have actually been successful and gone back to back. So, um, yeah, yeah it's... Um, yeah, and, it's, it's and been really crowds awesome to see. for the WBBL, I mean, I remember watching the um, final down in, I think it was down in Sydney last year, um, and they were getting great crowds for the for the final games. I mean, all through. Yeah, I think yeah no, that, was, that would have been two, two seasons ago. Okay. So we hosted the final in December last year in 2019 at, at Allen Border Field, which was was just remarkable. Um, the game was was sold out, um, and similarly, yeah, to to the match you're talking about was in in Sydney the, the previous year, which which is a heat uh, heat one as well. So no, it's look, it's come a, a long way, and it's it's on a huge growth curve, and um, yeah, it's really exciting that um, you know the, the the approach that cricket's taken to to women's sport generally, and, and the investment that's been made, and. Um, you know, it's having it's having a huge impact on again participation, young young girls, but also young boys picking up a a, a bat off the off the back of of, of women's cricket. It's just yeah. um, been great to see. Yeah, that's cool. So, what would you put as your biggest accomplishment with the Brisbane Heat? Oh, gee, it's good. It's a good question. Um, look, I think. I think I mean there's there's specific you know um, deals commercial deals there's um, player signings um, obviously there's there's high profile ones like AB de Villiers which um, AB came last summer and certainly the feeling moving forward is that he'll he'll look to return so yeah I think um, that that one comes to mind and most people you know usually ask about that in terms of some of the the big highlights I guess. Just to touch on that one, I mean that that was sort of two and a half years in the making, two and a half years of <laughs> of persistence, um, knocking on the door, and, and lots of lots of um, no's and not yet, no, not now, um, maybe, um, definitely not. To to <laughs> yes, it, it it can happen. So yeah, good lesson in persistence that one. Um, yeah. But to be honest, the probably the biggest highlight is is coming back to what we we're talking about as to why was it all created and. The things we were already saying about you know you walk along the street and you see a young kid wearing a shirt. I mean, it, it's it's not a it's not necessarily a um, you know a specific initiative on its own, but it's probably the whole reason why the whole thing was created just to see what it has done to participation and what it has done to seeing so many mums and families at the game. I think just the whole strategy has worked, and and I still say it's probably one of the best examples of whether it's business or sport, um, you know, it's, it's a university case study on when you you find an insight and you build a plan around it and you are relentless in implementing and executing that strategy uh, and it works. Yeah. And to be honest, that's probably the greatest highlight over the nine years is just that we had a real problem um, and, you know, you work across so many different industries with your agency. Like, you know, we all have different if you call them problems or you call them opportunities or challenges, but, you know, businesses have them all the time. But I just think this is a great example of putting a plan in place to fix a problem or to, you know, capitalise on opportunity and um, it worked. And that's, um, yeah, it's pretty cool to have been a part of. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a remarkable case study to look at in terms of how a sporting code in cricket recognised a huge problem 
in um, in an aging fan base and revitalized it. And I think, what do you put it down to? You know, because I've got my views on on it in terms of I think it goes far beyond the sport. Like if you go to a heat game, it's it's much more than the twenty overs of cricket. There's the you know the fan experience and things like that. But what would you sort of put it down to around the success of the Big Bash? Well, I think I think again, just coming back to you know what, what your purpose is. I mean, one of the, the best things off off the back of that strategy in those early years that, that we really honed in on was our purpose. And, you know, I've always been big um, and fortunate actually to work with some brands even prior to the heat, um, working on brands that are really clear about their purpose. And, um, you know, I started out of university at Diageo, which is one of the, the biggest global alcohol yep. <laughs> um, uh, companies in the world. And, you, and you've, you know, being a young buck out of uni there, um cutting your teeth, I guess, in marketing and sales and commercial. And you, you look at their portfolio of brands and you think about brands like like patriotic brands like Bundaberg Rum, um, traditional brands like Johnny Walker, um, Bailey's, Guinness, um, Smirnoff Vodka. And then you'd have like new products that would just come about, new brands that would be created to, to sort of capitalise on on opportunities. And, and it, was, it was a great apprenticeship in, you know, in, in seeing the role that the different roles that brands play and, and but each brand has its own purpose and yeah so for us with the heat you know I sort of come back to to what the purpose was the purpose was really simple the purpose was to bring families together yeah um, the purpose wasn't about being um, you know it wasn't about necessarily winning on the field um, the purpose wasn't necessarily about being the most elite or um, it was simply the purpose of the club and we talked to players about this we talked to staff about this we talked to sponsors about this we talked to anyone who wants to listen is that the purpose is just to bring families together now that doesn't undermine or or disrespect um, the contest or the game of cricket that's actually going on but when you you know you make that really clear and you build everything else around that and everyone who's bought into it or everyone involved buys into that then um, it does become about um, you know a product that's focused on entertainment um, and that's the long the long play so it's certainly disappointing and frustrating and um, you really feel it when the on-field success doesn't happen um, yeah and that's a real short-term um, frustration I've always seen it as the long-term benefit is that you know wh- what you're doing and who you're engaging with and, and how um, how they've embraced it that, that's a long-term that's a long-term play around you know they're going to be a customer in the sport for life um, you know yes it's disappointing when you lose and I tell you what you know, given how how digitally oriented a brand like the Heat is in sport, and most most sporting teams, I'd probably say almost all sporting teams now are. Um, yeah. You certainly feel it, um, mm. but yeah, it, it's it's one eye on that and and trying to improve that, which is difficult in a game like T Twenty cricket um, to to find consistency. But the other eye is on the long term play, which you know is working, um, and the on field success will come. And when the both click both those two elements click together, then, you know, hold on because it'll be a, an incredible ride. But, um, yeah, you certainly, certainly uh, by focusing in on that entertainment product, um, you know, has been really critical around just, just again, focusing on the, on the purpose of, of the brand and the club. Yeah. No, that's really cool. 
And that's evident hearing that purpose. I mean, I know I've worked on Brisbane Heat years, quite a few years ago, but, but hearing that purpose and, um, you know, remembering my time at the grounds, like actually just going to matches over the last few years, I've always tried to go to um, home games. And you see it around the crowd, like you see a lot of families in attendance, the off sort of um, or the entertainment that isn't just the players playing. You guys had that uh, Rocket Man and, um, you know, some pretty cool <laughs> dances and the Teletron where you'll have the TV and it'll cut away and it'll have kids dancing and, and stuff like that. Like, and then the Snapchat filters, like it was really, you know, it really was an experience. I mean, how did you guys stay up to date or stay fresh and relevant with those sorts of things? How much effort and time was put into that match day experience? Oh, it's massive. Um, at the end of the day, again, using um, looking from business point of view, that's that's the product. Um, so you know, you can you can market market it all year, but at the end of the day, you know, the purchase decision to come to a game, get off the couch, to catch public transport, to um, you know, to pay um, for stadium stadium catering. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a big decision, and it's it's often not a cheap exercise either. When you're yeah. sort of you know taking your family and you're going through that process, so the product is the experience. And um, in terms of how much time would be put in that, I mean, it, it's probably probably was one of the greatest focuses that you spend your whole year on because at the end of the day, you only get one chance. Um, and you know that by putting on a good show, um, the referral um, that's going to come from that that family unit or that uh, husband and wife or that grandfather and grandson, um, that's going to be significant. So, yeah, look, we, we've, you know, spent time in the US. We've looked a lot at American sport. Um, you know, we've, we've looked at other industries. We've, you know, you do pricing strategies on based on theme parks or bowling alleys or movies or, um, you know, you, you're not just looking within traditional sports. You're certainly looking at other entertainment um, offerings because they're your competitors as much as you know as much as tennis or, or football or, or any other other code so yeah I think it's um I think it's really important as sports we keep you know keep checking ourselves around well if the family budget's got x amount to spend on on leisure uh in a week or in a month then you know consider yourself up against all the other options not just those in sport and um yeah, it's certainly something we spent a lot of time on. And then, yeah, how can you just make this experience as good as it can be? And it's difficult in this country where, you know, you don't, unlike the US, you don't own stadiums. You know, you don't, the staff at the, you know, in the stands don't work or employ directly um, by you as the as the promoter or as the team. And don't get me wrong, there's a hell of a lot of benefits to that model, but um, you know, it's also means some challenges as well because you're relying on other providers. Um, you know, from the time you park your car and get on a, a you know, some public transport to getting to the venue, um, there's a hell of a lot of, um, uh, I guess, suppliers or businesses in between those steps to then you know that family going home and saying they had a great night. So certainly rely on others to to deliver your strategy as much as as you know what's in your direct control but um yeah. yeah in terms of getting that experience right and as good as it can be um is a, was a huge part of the job because you're right like you are relying on a lot of other people to create a successful experience or a great experience you know like you said the transport to and from the service like, at the venue and then unfortunately like 
you could put on the best halftime at entertainment or innings break entertainment and really cool throughout you know things throughout the game but if the team have a crap match um, you know again it's um it must be incredibly <laughs> frustrating or challenging to be able to cope with that or deal with that what did yeah. you guys yeah like what would happen when you know when the heat had a shocker and you know blew oh, a, blew mate, a big lead or, yeah, yeah look it's the, i tell you one of the the moments that i in terms of game days and events the moments particularly a home game that i'd enjoy the most is when you got a big crowd coming um and those, you know, a few hours before the game starts and, you you know, you, you, you basically, once you've got everyone in the ground um, and everything's relatively, um, you know, you've put out all the all, all the, the issues, If there's always issues, we're clearly moving, you know, you're talking about 35,000 people coming to one spot, you're, you're always going to have um, things come up. Um, yeah. You know, tickets might not scan or this person's seat was broken when they got in or um whatever there wasn't enough buses too many buses you're always going to have those those logistical event challenges but one of the most enjoyable moments for me was when everyone was in about maybe 45 minutes to an hour into the game and the game's actually just it's just in the balance so it doesn't it wasn't even the times when the heat were were winning or ahead of the game it was actually you got a big crowd in it's all okay and the game's actually it's on and it's it's there to be decided. Yeah. Um, you know, I think as as you know, you're running those big events, you there's 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 always a frustration when you you get to that stage. But you know, you if you in a in a cricket sense or a big bash sense, if you <laughs> and it has happened um, a few times over the years. But if you lose three or four quick wickets and you you know you're, you're three or four for twenty runs and you got a massive crowd in and uh, you sort of, you know, unsure as to, as to what sort of um, match is going to get played out. It certainly, um, certainly plays in your mind, but, it, but again, there's so many things in sport and, and events generally that you just can't control. Um, yeah. And the nature of T20 cricket, why we love it so much is that uh, anything can and often does happen. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's um, in terms of the, you know, the fan feedback. I mean, probably last summer out of the nine years that I was involved was probably the most significant. Um, again, the Heat have got some of the biggest social media channels um, in Australian sport. Um, I actually think the most followed if you add up in terms of all the club teams of any That's COVID cool. in Australia, which is which is phenomenal. And and But what that means is you've got this, you know, millions of people um, that have a platform there to to let you know how you're going when you're doing well and then also, you know, tell you what's wrong. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's significant. Um, but, again, every sport experiences that. And to be fair, most businesses now of any nature are in that as well, whether, you know, systems crash or, you know, things don't don't go well. Um, oh, that's right. You're yeah. going to hear about it. But, yeah, I think it's just, it's just um, you know, having, again, one eye on it and certainly being across it but also – um, knowing that in in sport, um, it, it peaks straight after the game, and then it'll, it'll slowly um, come back down until you play again. And and the good thing about Big Bash League or T Twenty cricket is you often play quite quickly after game. So I I used to always say I feel for some of the more traditional codes that go week to week. You know, I look at um, you know say the Broncos right now they're obviously going through a, a a tricky little period, you know, you've, you've got a week between games. You, you can't fix it within 24, 
48 hours. Whereas, um, yeah, in BBL or T20 cricket, you often get an opportunity soon after um, yeah. to, to get back out there and hopefully turn it around. So uh, I think the intensity is the same across codes. I reckon pretty similar, but I reckon the benefit of T20 cricket or Big Bash is that you've probably got a shorter time frame um, that it'll go on for. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Tr- trying to find a positive out of that situation. Yeah, you've got you've got a few days of journalists telling you everything that's wrong with uh, the club instead of um, you know in the Broncos case, sort of a week uh, of of Courier Mail articles to tell them everything that's wrong. Yeah, and talkback shows and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, radio shows and yeah. So, but look, you know that's the nature of, of you know a season like that. And um, but I tell you what, yeah, we're passionate, aren't we? We're passionate about our sport, and um, and that's a great thing. I think you know one thing that you're. I used to always think about during those times is just, and it's really hard to, 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 to really find at the time, but the glass half full approach to that criticism is you've actually got to really engage. Yes, it might be abusive. Yes, it might be, um, and sometimes it's unacceptable. I mean, we, you know, some of it's can be threatening behavior and, and, and that is unacceptable, but, um, the, the silver lining or the, again, the long term play with that is that you've got a, you know, you've got a really passionate, um, fan base and if you had said nine years ago when you're starting something from scratch that people will become passionate about you probably would have been criticized that you're kidding yourself um, people won't become passionate about you know a Mickey Mouse competition that's about fireworks and other things and that's the that's the thing when you want to build a club you, you, you do need to build tribalism and you know, I've always seen as as frustrating as those losses can be um, the passion is there and it's coming through and yeah, you know, field performances will turn, and uh, and when they do, then you'll you'll have those really passionate supporters on your side as well. Yeah, that's that's really that's a really good point. Of um, you know, that feeling of if people are really angry and upset about it, it's probably because they're quite invested. Um, whereas if they're indifferent, uh, you know, hearing nothing back would just be meaning that there's no one really engaged. So while it's a, it's a nice way to look at it in terms of um, you know, the glass half full approach of yeah. well, I mean, we're hearing it, but it's because they actually care about us and they want us to succeed as opposed to just hearing nothing back. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. The, the, you do see the odd comments where it's just abusive and you know, completely ridiculous and uncalled for. Like, and that would be hard to, um, as an organization to, to, you know, make sure that you're, you're not sort of acknowledging that or um, engaging with it or being able to sort of switch that off because yeah, it's not fair to have things like that thrown at you that are you know, really uncalled for. So was there someone in yeah. your social department that would have to respond or raise those or would they hide them like what would what would they do when it was just ridiculous like that yeah no there is and 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 that was always something that we we you know want to be really proactive with is is monitoring it and and keeping an eye on it and responding where appropriate and sometimes you you know you, you need to report um you know some of the the really bad fan abuse and those sorts of things but yeah it's definitely i think a modern challenge for digital teams moving forward is actually in sport, you know, is keeping an eye on on the mental health of the people that are actually, you know, on the keyboard and, and on this side that are that are governing those pages because they're the they're the ones that see it. And and you know, there's not one person that works in sport that's not passionate about the club or the team that they work for. Um, yeah. Whether you've been there for for a month or you've been there for, in my case, nine years, um, you become passionate about something that's bigger than yourself and something that other people enjoy watching so yeah i think it was always a real challenge with us because yeah you've got to 
you know, group of people that are seeing it firsthand. I mean, it's it's okay for me because I can sort of dip in and dip out and, and you know, look at, um, get a summary as to how bad it was. But when you're actually sitting there and, and watching it coming through, it's, um, yeah, it's just something to keep an eye on, I think, for, for administrators and people who work in digital. Um, again, not only in sport, but in, in any industry. I think as sporting teams, you'd be really worried if you have a, a, a really bad loss or, or, or a great win and, and things are pretty, you know, pretty vanilla on your, mm. on your social platforms. You, you want the extremes. Um, and even though it's, it's not great to hear when you're going through the negative times. Um, yeah. Again, keeping one eye on the long term and that you've got really passionate people here and eventually it will turn. Um, and yeah, you certainly want to hear that passion. You just don't want to hear that next level. Um, you know, some of the, some of those things that are just simply inappropriate. Yeah. And how did the players come across it? Like, do they, do the coaches or does the management staff, do you guys ever bring up some of these comments and feedback, like fan feedback when it's just genuine and it's just disappointment in that sense? Yeah. Or I mean, do they read it themselves or like how exposed do you think they are, some of them are to it? Oh, I think, I think some of them are really exposed to it. I think there's probably probably three tiers if you were to look at it that way. I think there's those that have been around the game for a while and, and have switched off from it, um, yep. probably used to consume it in their early days but are now at a point where they've completely turned off from it. Um, there's probably those in the middle that probably say that they don't um, but still have a peak um, or hear things. I think one thing for, for, for sports moving forward is we used to focus so much on – on educating the players. I, th- I think where the biggest opportunity is, is the circle around the players. So, you know, the, the boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, brother-in-law, cousin, um, you know, uh, local barista, like it, it's about how far, how far do you want to take it? Because they I think those, that, that, that inner and, and, you know, inner circle, uh, if we call it that around a, a player in their life is, it's those people that are often, you know, wanting to defend, um, you know, their partner or their friend or, mm. or whoever it might be. And I think they actually, you know, don't get any of the education and they don't, they don't um, necessarily, um, you know, know the right tools to, to put in place, but they'll often maybe jump in and try and defend the player, which can be a good thing at times, but can also be a, not, not a great thing as well. So, oh, Especially in the age where, you know, you get screenshotted and shared around, even further, you know, it's um, you can, I've That's seen right. it happen yeah. in in rugby union where players' wives have defended their partners, and then that goes viral of just them trying to stick up for someone. Um, like That's right, and yeah. that's the thing. You, you you know, again, it's got good intentions, but you can almost inflame um, yeah. the situation by by doing it. So, you know, I think the education always has to be there for the players, but the players' managers, the players' families, the players' loved ones, um, you know, um, fathers-in-laws, mothers, and like that whole circle needs to, needs to be given some level of education so that when they go through it, um, they know what they should and, and probably shouldn't do. But, um, yeah, I'd have to say, you know, you've got that mixture of players. And then, then the, the other group is probably the ones that are actually younger players coming through that are fully into it, that are, you know, checking it post-match um, and they haven't known, you know, a- any other way and they've grown up with it. So, yeah, yeah, I reckon in my experience anyway, there's probably been players across those three different categories that um, 
that have engaged with social media and fan feedback in those ways. And you mentioned before the different things that could influence, I guess, the success of the team, or not necessarily the team, but your efforts in, um, you know, as a GM and um, in sort of what happens on game day and stuff like that. How were you guys measured each year in terms of success? Was it memberships or crowd numbers or what sort of things would you guys look at to know if you were on track? Yeah, well, there's probably two areas. I mean, one, the on-field performance. You obviously, you know, you want to be winning winning titles or at least qualifying for finals. And that's, that's you know, there's a hell of a lot of other KPIs around the on-field performance, but they're certainly the... The obvious ones that you know you strive to achieve each year. Um, in the off-field sense, um, there's a range of them from financial, you know, things like sponsorship revenue, ticket revenue, corporate hospitality revenue, um, uh, membership, the growth of the membership program, and then you look at you know things like digital um, fan satisfaction, um, fan experience. Um, you know how enjoyable was the game? How easy was it? Um, so, mate, there's a there's a, a real um, broad range of off-field um, KPIs that the, the team will look to achieve, and I think, um, yeah, ultimately, it's it's about growing your fan base, um, yeah. you know, growing your your revenue streams, which is going to make the club and, and ultimately the sport stronger. Um, but then, you know, thirdly, but certainly not lastly, is, is your on-field performance and um, and making sure that you're you're competitive and you you know you're achieving success on the field because in the day it is a contest and you need to you need to be successful to keep the whole engine moving forward and you know when the teams do perform well so take the women's brisbane heat team winning two titles in a row did you find sponsorships the following seasons were a lot easier to attract yeah absolutely absolutely yeah it's it's certainly it certainly helps there's there's no question about that um I think there's nothing, nothing like the momentum um, that that's gained from success on the field, and and you know the conversation starters that 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 enables um, in the business world or the corporate world um, off the back of. So it certainly helps, um, you know, fuel the whole again the whole engine to 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 keep running and and to keep growing. So um, that's something we've experienced. Um, yeah, more recently with with our women's team, but also with the men's team as well. Like again, you you want to win titles, but um, you can also be successful in other ways. So you know the the team, you know, performance on the field is one thing, but I think also too how the players carry themselves, how they engage with the fans, how they engage with the media, um, how open they make themselves to it. Um, your coaching staff as well, you know, your head coaches, how well they engage with the media is really important. And they're the things that that help as well. Um, not only winning, winning matches and then ultimately winning titles, but also winning over the hearts and minds of, of, of the fans. Um, and that's something you, you really can control. And on sponsorships, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, a few years ago, one of your main sponsors, CUA had a pool deck at the Gabba. So they had <laughs> a big, was it above ground swimming pool? And you'd be able to watch the game from the comfort of the pool how did that come about? Because, I mean, yeah. that, that sounds crazy to be in a pool watching cricket, but it looks great on TV and I'm sure CUA members were pretty happy to snap up those tickets. So take me through that because I just think that's brilliant. Yeah, no, it was a really cool innovation and I think, you know, there's probably half a dozen like that. You know, you mentioned Rocketman earlier. We've, 
had hovercrafts, you know, <laughs> on the field. We've had made all sorts of um, creative things. I think the pool deck, or the pool itself, is probably you know probably right up there um, in terms of some of the cooler, um, pardon the pun, ideas that we've had that we've been able to get over the line. And, again, you talk about stadiums and, um, you know, government-owned stadiums and working with those guys to collaborate on what is, you know, it's not a – it's not a really simple process or a project. It's quite complicated. So that, that initiative actually came about in conjunction with Cricket Australia and it was came about at a time when they were wanting to, you know, to invest in um, in international cricket and activations at those games. And at the same time, we were having conversations with Seaway about, um, you know, standing out from the crowd and, and activating their sponsorship with the Heat in a way that was, um, was you know, really unique and different and, um yeah, you know, it's a bit like anything in life, I suppose. The timing was everything um, with both those two conversations happening at once and we were able to make it happen and, and the pool went in for test cricket uh, and one-day cricket that summer and and then also, you know, for Big Bash. So, yeah, it was it was a great initiative. Uh, you know, it, it had worldwide exposure and media coverage. Um, the, the, the logistics of it certainly wasn't an easy an easy feat, um, <laughs> but the right people were, were sitting around the table and, um, you know, could make it happen. So, you know, you pull seats out of stadiums, you you know, you've got a pool. Well, pools, pools of that size obviously have a significant weight and significant load. So, you know, you've got all the engineering that, that goes in behind it. Um, you've got a whole heap of risk um, associated with fans, um, you know, using the pool and um, kids in the pool and potential balls being hit near the pool and um, <laughs> you name it. Um, you know, again, you're looking at world-class events of this sort of scale. You've really got to be working through so many different um, scenarios. You know, the scenario planning that goes on is, is so significant. So, yeah, it was it was fantastic. I think in the end it stayed for two or three seasons. Um, in the end... Why did it go? We, we probably probably at a point where it's like, well, what's next with it? Yeah. Um, you know, could there be a water slide into it? Um, <laughs> could could you make it bigger? Um, you know, I think you've got to keep innovating. I think these things have certainly got a lifespan, but yeah. you know, you can keep that lifespan going if you can keep bolting on to the original idea and improving it. I think when you when you try to add to it, but probably diminishes it is is when you've gone wrong. But um. Yeah, Rocket Man was a bit the same. I think we ended up having Rocket Man. Um, and for those listeners that don't know Rocket Man, he was basically a Brisbane-based aeronautical engineer who invented a jetpack, um, a bit like what we all tried to do with a cereal box when we were kids. Um, <laughs> he, he created a jetpack and, and you know, would perform at halftime at the games and fly across the sky. And same thing, you know, phenomenal Um you know, piece of entertainment um, for kids and, and kids of any age, I suppose. And and I he <laughs> flew at Heat Games uh, for three years. And in the end, we actually were pushing him and, and the technology to, to do more and and um, try and innovate a bit further. And um, yeah, we reached our lifespan with that that idea as well. But geez, it was a it was a lot of fun and um, it was amazing. I used to hear feedback that. I remember hearing a piece of feedback from a father who was at a Brisbane Lions game and his son said to him, when does, when does Rocketman fly? And, uh, you know, it, it just became um, synonymous with the Brisbane heat or even sport for some kids just thinking, well, this just happens every time you go to a sporting event. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was so loud and it was just such a sort of, um, 
yeah, theatrical sort of experience at, at <laughs> halftime. Like everyone would stop. I mean, I've been at games where, yeah, you literally like will come back from the bar if you're lining up to see it. And yeah, it's, well, know, every, it might everyone, take 20 seconds or something like that to happen, but it's really cool. Well, everyone would stop and my heart would stop just before he hit the ground and touched down um, because it was always that sort of, you know, again, when you're scenario planning for these <laughs> sorts of things, you just when you get about – 15 maybe 10 meters off the ground is um that was always the um the really sort of uh anxious period for me because you just wanted him to touch down and get his feet on the ground <laughs> because yeah. i used to have visions um you wake up in the middle of the night and have visions of this jetpack just cutting out and um oh, obviously you're planned and prepared for those sorts of worst case scenarios but it was always something that when he hit the ground the right way and landed safely, then that was always <laughs> a celebration for the fans, but a celebration for us <laughs> yeah, as, uh, as organisers. Yeah. Mate, it, I mean, as you've talked about, the, the Big Bash and the Brisbane Heat, you know, constantly at the forefront of innovation and pushing, you know, that fan experience. A code that I'm really passionate about, rugby union in Australia, is probably not one that hasn't really done any of that. And, and one that we're really sort of seeing the fan base dwindle. What do you think they need to do? Um, again, it's another, another great question. And look, I always, I've always looked at rugby union and, and, and um, firstly admired it because I think it's a great sport myself as well and, and followed it as a kid and um, have really fond memories of going to, to Ballymore and, and watching the Reds play and, um, you know, it's just such a great experience. Talk about experience is certainly different than what we've just been talking about with, say, something um, new like the Big Bash League and the Heat. But, you know, just a really memorable and iconic sort of event to go to. Um, I, I think it's always difficult, to be honest, Dan, like to, to know what to do from the outside. I think, you know, it's, I, I, once you get in there and, and understand, you know, what the real challenges are, at a at a, at a a deeper level, you know, um, clearly there's an issue with um, you know with with the fan base and and having consistency of the product and having a product that not only rugby people can understand but but new new customers can understand. I think that's probably from again I call myself an outsider from an outsider's point of view. I look at it and think that you know there's there's a huge opportunity to improve the spectacle. Um, from from probably from a rules point of view that makes yeah. it easier to watch and, and easy to understand. I think um, you can take learnings not only from from cricket or Big Bash, but so many, you know, you look at what the NRL's just done in the last few weeks with some of the, the tinkering that they've done with their rules. Um, the games are much more, I mean, you know, so much more enjoyable to watch. Um, they're so much faster. Um, there's more tries being scored. Um, there's less dead time. And I think game of rugby, if you haven't grown up with it, um, if you haven't gone to a private school, if you haven't played it, um, if you if you turn it on, um, you're probably incredibly likely to, to engage with it and keep watching it unless you understand it. And um, yeah. for me, the biggest opportunity for them is to simplify the game, simplify the explanation behind what goes on. Um, yeah. But also, and, and, and this is where it's really tricky, I reckon, and this is where you know it's, when you make those changes, you've got to get it right. You've got to you've got to make sure that the the core rugby audience. Um, is fully engaged in those changes, but the changes are enough that 
the layman can engage and, and become really interested in the sport as well. So I think if you can get that balance right, and it's not always you know easy to do, but if you can get that those adjustments right where you sit smack in the middle of your core audience because you certainly don't want to lose them, yeah. but you can also open yourself up to this um, you know this mass market that is currently not engaging. Then I think that's that's the perfect storm and. Um, that's where I think, um, you know, they need, they need to be looking at. And then all the other things just fall off the back of that because once you get that product right, then, you know, how you market it and, and all the other, um, you know, dressings that, that can go with it and, and how you promote it, how you activate digitally, how you commercialise it, all that will flow. Um, but I think you've got to get to the heart of what the challenges are. Um, and once you, once you fix those, then, um, you know, things will improve. But it's going to take time, isn't it? I mean, it's... it's um, you know, clearly had some challenges, but um, no doubt they can they can turn it around and get it back to probably what you and I both grew up with. You know, you watching Super Rugby and, and seeing big crowds and engaged audiences and and seeing um, you know test matches play between you know some of the big nations, South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia, and just some of the great finishes too. Not only yeah. in rugby, but just in any sport. I mean, I think about that early sort of two thousands where just you know you almost looked at the Bledisloe cup match and, and and just knew that it was going to go down the wire and you know just that that's where they'll end up I reckon if they can make some of these adjustments yeah no that's that's a great point and and I agree with your sentiment in terms of it needs to it needs to be a good product it needs to be able to you know keep that core audience but then attract new people to the game and then hopefully have a have a good contest where it's a you know it's quite competitive it's not just um you know a predetermined yeah. outcome each time Mate, what other yeah. sporting codes do you reckon are doing it right in growing their game? I think it, it depends on the time, <laughs> the time of the year or the or, or the day of the week at the moment. Like, um, yeah, no doubt the NRLs um, had a lot of um, you know applause, I guess, um, from the community to, to getting back out there the quickest and getting games back on. I think you know one thing I look at those guys and I reckon as sports administrators, we're often you know, at times we can often be somewhat conservative and um, and sometimes too conservative. I, th- I look at the way that that um, the NRL guys are pushing forward. Certainly, you know, it's full of, um, you know, um, they're, they're, they're proactive, they're, they're looking for opportunities, they're taking them and, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're moving forward. So, yeah, in the last few weeks, the NRL's been really impressive how they've, you know, they've not let hurdles get in their way. They've found ways to overcome the challenges that they've had, um, but they're, they're probably the highlight in the last few weeks. I, yeah. I've always, just from a general point of view, I admire um, you know brands like the UFC, not for necessarily the you know the brutality of of of, of their their product, but I actually really admire the way that they position themselves. I think you've got you know heroes and villains, and um, you know the way that they you know, see themselves in that genuine entertainment space. Um, I think it's been a fascinating journey for those guys, um, how quickly it's risen to be such a, you know, such a big global sport now. And yeah, such massive. a um, Yeah, like that, that I think it's just been phenomenal. And you look at the characters that are involved, um, you know, there's some great personalities there and um, no doubt things are, you know, um, Put on and 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 um, hammed up for the for the hype in the media, and I think it's yeah. a great great example. Like I've always looked at the, the WW formerly WWF wrestling now WWE, but yeah, yeah, is actually again, it, it's a great it's a great brand that um, 
fully understands why they exist and understands the the role of entertainment. I mean, who would have thought that that, again, you're probably the same as me. I remember watching Hulk Hogan and The Ultimate Warrior and The Undertaker, you know, when I was a kid and, uh, well, I think The Undertaker's still rolling around. But <laughs> Man, I think he is. Yeah. It is just a phenomenal business model where, you know, they get it. And, and yeah, like those, those sorts of um, – those sorts of brands, I reckon, are just unbelievable. You know, they, they've got a consistent product. They know how to entertain. They know how to engage the family. They put on a bloody good show. And, well, I think um, wrestling is um, like that. It's like just a traveling circus that's just, I think, you know, 320 days a year or something. It's um, moving around the country in the States and, you know, then they do the big main events. It's, it's really you know, incredible um, how they've yeah. done it. And then, you know, UFC is similar in terms of the feeder programs that they have so they can have spin-off, you know, ultimate, is it ultimate warrior or where they'll have yeah. these, you know, reality shows to get new either fighters or, you know, in the WWE's case, wrestlers into it. I just think yeah. they're, they're brilliant brands and how they, um, I guess, build an ecosystem around the main product to actually support and feed into it. And then, yeah. you know, the merchandising, the sponsorships. I mean, yeah, I would have been like you, you know, getting up early to watch wrestling on TV and, you know, I remember the, finding out when I was about 10 years old or something that it wasn't real yeah. um, and the <laughs> devastation. <laughs> and yeah. Just, just, yeah. yeah, I was very upset. But, um, <laughs> but I think UFC has sort of become, you know, adult wrestling, I think. I mean, there's a lot yeah. more to it than that. But I think you're right. It kind of reminds me of what you said about the rugby union. It's got uh, – UFC has done incredible because they've got a very core fan base. So I know a lot of people who are really up to date with it. But then they've got characters and people who are big enough that will bring in the, the people who are sort of sitting on the sidelines. So, you know, not everyone will go and watch every main event, but mate, every time Conor McGregor fights, you know, everything stops and, and people will watch him. So there's these people who are sort of who transcend the sport that bring everyone into it. Yeah. Um, and I just think yeah. it's an incredible brand in that sense. It's sort of like what heavyweight boxing was you know, when Mike Tyson was fighting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, you go back to what we're talking about with Rugby Union and, you know, Conor McGregor has broad appeal and, um, you know, he's attracted people to that to that sport, uh, call a sport, we, we, to, to, that otherwise wouldn't have been involved in mm. in that because he's got such an eccentric personality and, you know, he is who he is. And I think, um, yeah, having broad appeal is critical um, at every level, whether it be through your, your talent or through, you know, how the sport and the rules work. But you've got to have that mass appeal. If, if, you, if you become too complicated, too niche, I just think you're, you know, you, you're limiting limiting what what you can become and then ultimately you you know you, you shrivel up and and um you know you can't grow you grow your base so no they're, they're really interesting different but interesting um examples those two it's funny you say broad appeal like that because it's something that i normally steer away from for certain brands or you know if it was a premium service-based yeah. business yeah i'd be like do not you know you do not want to be mass market you want to cater to a small audience and get them a group of people who all have the same problem or challenge and you're solving that thing like you're the specialist but you're completely right when it comes to a sporting team or an organization like that a brand like that you do not want to be niche like there's you know the niche ones are those those wrestling ones that you know they might have a really core fan base um but it's like the tna wrestler i don't know there's other little yeah. um like factions of the wwe and what end normally ends up happening is the wwe just 
if they get big enough, they'll just buy them and bring them into their brand. Yeah. So it's sort yeah. of like I think in sports, you raise a really good point that it has to have that broad appeal. And then you've got to have those yeah. players or those um, personalities that do bring people into the game like that. You definitely don't want to focus on being niche or being yeah, a specialist. Yeah. Well, I think too, you know, you look at how sport works. I mean, you know, you, 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 you unfortunately, there's, there's only um, a limited number of, of revenue streams that are probably seen as fairly traditional. And, um, you know, you need mass appeal to, to fuel those, those, those types of revenue streams you're talking about. I mean, if you were to develop a way that you can bring money into your game that, that didn't require that require it, then great. Um, but I think you look at how sport survives and and um, and grows, um, and it's you know money coming into that ecosystem that ultimately should go back out to it to to grow the the next um, the next fan base or the, the next level of participants. And um, you need mass appeal. And I think yeah, again, you look at all the sports that are, that are maybe struggling a little bit. Um, they're probably if you put a filter over, do they have mass appeal either with their players, um, the talent, if you know, or the the rules, or how easy is understand? If you if you put that mass appeal filter over it, and if the answer is no, then I reckon you'd probably get a correlation between the ones that are you know finding it a bit a bit tougher at the moment. So I, I think it's critical. You you got to you got to appeal to the masses to make sure that you you know you keep keep growing. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's a great insight. So, Andrew, mate, we've come out of uh, probably all watching The Last Dance on Netflix um, yeah. and no one probably had more mass appeal or brought more people to a sport than Michael Jordan did and that, uh, that Bulls team of the early and late 90s. But I want to talk to you about a character in there, Jerry Krause, who's the GM because you're a GM. <laughs> now, did they do Jerry dirty in the show? Like what are your thoughts on – because he got the job well, done. Yeah. But, um, he didn't, I don't know. I I think I know what you're going to ask me, but I I I don't know whether they've stitched him up or not. I I'd like to I'd like to hear um, or read, and I haven't done or seen any of it, but some media from Jerry um, post the series because um, yeah, I think I think he was made out to be uh, um, and clearly was at times a fairly unlikable kind of character. But geez, I tell you what, he was successful, um, yeah, that's and right. you know you, you, you need someone like him behind the scenes, um, you know, tinkering with all the elements that you, you can tinker with in a sporting team or a club. And tell you what, he's, he's got a, you know, a, a pretty fair track record there. So, yeah, I'd be interested to see, you know, whether the perception matches up with, with the reality of, of, of how he, he was. Um, but certainly, yeah, unbelievable series and, and just oh, incredible so content. The content, yeah. the the foresight clearly to capture that content, and for it to only be coming out now, and then you talk about you know take well the go to market strategy of of I think it was fast track um, by by a number of months to come out while we're all sitting on our couches in lockdown. Um, yeah, it had a captive audience, that's for sure. It certainly did, and it, and I'm glad that it came out because it quickly washed over the the memory of Tiger King that I had. Um, <laughs> my mind I, I still am unsure why i watched that um <laughs> and i only watched it because there was a whole heap of hype around it and my wife uh dropped out halfway through the first episode and i managed to to go all the way through and i i certainly felt um less intelligent for the oh, experience man. but yeah got- i'm glad that that came through because it kind of cleansing period yeah to yeah. 
to uh, restore what I've lost through through Tiger King. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, they're chalk and cheese in terms of quality of content. Tiger King's amazing in the sense of, yeah, you come out of it and, you know, the main dude, Joe Exotic, is just a terrible, horrible, horrible person who's extremely cruel to animals and, you know, sort of finally at the end maybe realizes. But you come out of it not completely hating the guy yet you dislike someone who's set up an organization in Carol Baskin or, you know, the media or like the, yeah. I guess the populace dislike this person who's built a life on trying to help. I mean, I don't know how helpful she's been as well, but it's just an amazing sort of um, human experiment and how people respond to people or personalities on TV because he really is a villain, but he's still got all this, you know, pop culture and, and fans through it. I don't know, it's yeah. bizarre. But, um, yeah, but nah. on the last dance, I think you're right. Like, creating a product that people outside of basketball fans just absolutely love the storylines and the way it's produced and packaged as a documentary series I think is brilliant. And I think we'll see, I mean, I'd like to know your opinion, but um, yeah, I think we'd see a lot more sporting documentaries come out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's set a new benchmark, hasn't it? I mean, I think on a, on a much smaller scale and certainly um, nowhere near the standard, I think, you know, a lot of sports have been playing in and around this space, but what it's done is set a new standard for um, what what sports should be striving towards. And you know, that that takes huge buy-in from from not only the the players and the coaching staff, but the administrators and everyone involved to to commit to that. You know, one series that that I thought was was right up there as well was. Um, was the Amazon series on on the Australian cricket team? I just can't the remember the, Mate, the I just test, had it, I was writing it yeah. down as you were saying yeah. it because I was thinking yeah. I should actually ask you about it. I watched it and I absolutely loved it. And yeah, uh, it was the same. I, I thought it was I thought brilliant. It was so and, and, good. Yeah, and and what a great insight. You know, the Australian cricket team. You know, if you were talking about that 10, 20 years ago, you know, it'd be unheard of to think that you could get that sort of access. So yeah, I think that that was a a great example of of what we've seen you know, now with the last dance, um, to get that insight and actually understand and, and just, just see for, you know, um, a short period of time what it's like, um, in that change room and what the players actually go, go through. And, um, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, storytelling and, and how important it is and, and what that does for, you know, the, the, the players in their, and their profile and, and the sport and everyone involved, the head coach and the, and the, the assistant coaches, it just tells their story. Uh, and you just see it from such a different perspective to what we're, we're normally conditioned to, which, so yeah, and no, I thought the test was probably, to be honest, probably was right up there. It's probably something that, you know, probably only just been outdone by the last dance in terms of, um, you know, compelling sort of behind the scenes sporting documentary. Um, Matt, I'm, I'm with you. I was very engrossed in watching it and my impression of Justin Langer out of watching that, I just thought he was just a brilliant coach, a brilliant leader. I thought Tim Payne was a brilliant leader. I was referencing it to a few friends at a, at a business event and um, just in terms of leadership, in what Justin Langer and Tim Payne were doing through that campaign and through the um, yeah. season. I actually think how Justin Langer used storytelling to the players and, and how he coached them differently based on their personalities. He really knew them. He really built a connection with them. I think it's actually there's some valuable lessons in there for anyone who's um, in a leadership role to learn from. And it's just a really yeah. entertaining watch as well. So I think there's so many takeaways from that. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more, mate. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. I wonder um, 
if it's someone proactive in the Australian team or setup that does reaches out to these distribution platforms or production companies or if it's vice versa, if it's the production company going to them. Because I know the All Blacks were in one a few years ago with Amazon uh, yep. as well. But it wasn't yep. as good. It wasn't yep. as raw. It wasn't as behind. Like, it's almost like someone went through and then edited it to take out anything that was too insightful or too you know behind, you know peeking behind the curtains too much whereas the yeah the what the test had was this quite raw yeah. unfiltered you know impression of it you know you you actually felt like you really learned some stuff that you never would have been exposed to yeah exactly now my understanding of it is you you ultimately commit to capturing the content first and foremost and then you know work through the the distribution model the partners you know post that but i think that's clearly that's what's gone on with the last dance and um you know and from what i understand same with the tests i think if you you know you're going to capture the content and and you sort of work back from from there as opposed to going the other way around i think the more the more you know authentic footage that you can capture in those moments that um you know such such unique um and it's really only ever been the inner sanctum that are involved in in these teams that really get to be in those situations whereas um you know i think for for fans, you know, it's it's such an incredible, yeah, it's, it's incredible footage to, to watch and, and get a whole other perspective on how things work. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. But no worries. We ask a few questions in closing. So firstly, like what are your favourite mm-hmm. books? Favourite books? Look, I'll be honest, um, it's pretty simple for me because I'm not a massive, massive reader. I'm a huge podcast listener. So, um Mate, I'll be sure to subscribe to to your podcast now. And I should have done <laughs> Thanks, that. Mate. I should have done that previously, Dan. That's to be right. honest. Um, but yeah, look, uh, mate. Over the years, I mean, anything for me. Like my my background's always been heavily um, marketing oriented. So um, someone like Malcolm Gladwell, who's you know written yeah. some you know some iconic books, you know, from the Tipping Point, um, you know, Blink, um, you know, even some of his more recent stuff that he's done over the last few years. Um, yeah, I, I've always just, you know, thoroughly enjoyed and taken things out of those books that I've, you know, really tried to, you know, I still, I still think back, um, you know, from day to day, you know, in my role with Heat and, and even previous um, jobs that I've been in, you know, and you, you you think about the insights in those types of of books. So, you know, he's probably one that stands out when I you know I think about um, you know key authors and then and then and the key books. But to be honest, as I said, I'm not a huge huge reader. Which um, you know, I'm fortunate fortunately living in a time where that's okay um, because you, <laughs> there's there's so many ways of consuming content. And and I actually live up the Sunshine Coast. Um, and obviously commute to Brisbane most days and um, it gives me a really great um, opportunity to listen to um, to some, some awesome um, podcasts or, uh, or audio books and those sorts of things. So, yeah, certainly take a lot on but don't, um, don't read as much as I probably should um, but try and use the time in the car as effective as I can. Yeah, that's cool. I, I like, um, yeah, like you, you know, good podcasts, good audio books. I think Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point is one of the ones that sticks out for me and how he talks about how different ideas and movements will spread, I think is um, yeah. probably a really good reference for sports marketing, actually. Well, exactly. Pretty yeah. timeless too, isn't it? And, and very appropriate for sport, you know, because I think 
there's so many learnings, yeah, in that in that book. I mean, even even a book like Blink that you know is, sort of comes at at it from more from a different point of view around you know decision making and you know how you make decisions and and those sorts of things. I think yeah, every book is sort of there's a lot of similarities, but there's actually you know really different perspectives that he touches on. So yeah, if you haven't if you haven't read any of those, certainly most people have that are working in sort of business and marketing, advertising those those industries. But um, yeah, if you haven't, certainly good read. Yeah, we'll put some uh, put some links to those in the um, show notes. And mate, who's someone remarkable that we should speak to or know about? Oh, it's good. Another good question, um, mate. Th- there's probably one guy that comes to mind um, who you you may have you know read press about over the last sort of twelve months or or seen some of his work. But there's a guy by the name of Ben Crow who um, is probably best described as like a performance coach. Mm-hmm. Um, He's done a hell of a lot of work with um, a number of of high profile athletes, um, but works within the business sector as well, CEOs, um, execs, and those sorts of things. But Ben's um, Ben's background was actually working with Nike, um, and uh, worked with Nike here in Australia, and then went over to the states and. Um, part of you know that that journey in the '90s around you know the Nike brand and also you know part of the team launched the um, Air Jordans and, and those sorts of um, you know iconic brands that That's you awesome. know that really dominated. So yeah, he's a mate. If you ever get the chance to to contact him or, or hear him speak, um, he he's a, a remarkable guy to listen to. So I'd encourage. Um, yourself and, and and the listeners to um to check out Ben Crow. I know his website is Mojo M O J O Crow. So all one word Mojo Crow C R O W E dot com. Um there's some stuff on his website you'll be able to check out. But um yeah if you get a chance to listen to um um yeah any of any of his talks or he, he speaks at a number of conferences and those sorts of things. Yeah unbelievable um you know perception and and um talks a lot about um authenticity and, and really focusing in on your you know your purpose and um we we touched on that earlier in, in this podcast but you know talking about you know purpose for athletes purpose for brands and yeah really really great um you know a great experience to to hear from him and and, and take on board what he's got to say so yeah 100 percent encourage you if you can to um keep an eye out for ben and um Get around his stuff if you, if yeah, you can. Yeah, that's cool. That's a, that's a good recommendation. And what's your favourite quote or the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Probably there's so many to be honest, but but probably I I, I love um, there's a quote by Richard Branson that says that the real complexity is keeping it simple. And um, for me and my approach to um, to business and and to be honest. Um, personal life family life is just keep it really simple so i've always been a um yeah big believer in in keeping things simple and i yeah i love that quote by branson i think you know sometimes you can you can sort of outsmart yourself a little bit and you can you can um become layered in in data and research and should do this and might do that and this is more politically correct and we should go over there and ultimately you end up not really standing for anything and um yeah i've always been a big believer that's probably the sort of quote that's often been up on the wall you know in 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 my office over the years um different roles um along with a few others but yeah certainly 
um, big fan of of the idea of you know there's there's a whole heap of complexity in trying to keep something simple, but um, yeah, it's really important that we do. Yeah, no, I like that. I think there really is something in that. Like it's it's actually much harder if you're an expert on something, you should be able to un- explain it in in really easy terms, like almost like dumb it down to you know something that a five year old could understand. And if you can't do that then often you're not an expert in it, like you don't know enough about it. Exactly, exactly. And it's actually, you know, I think sometimes keeping it simple, there's sometimes a perception that it's it's not well thought out. It's, um, yeah, it's it's not detailed enough. It's not um, as elaborate as, as it needs to be, which I just think is completely the wrong way of looking at it. I think sometimes because of that feeling, we actually – yeah, we, we, we go down all these different paths and, and um, create a lot of, um, yeah, a, a lot of processes and things that simply don't need to be there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think we should shy away from keeping it simple. If, if, if we can, um, then absolutely um, try and keep things as simple as possible because, um, yeah, simple is easy to understand, simple is easy to market, simple's um, you know, we're talking about mass appeal. Well, you know, those two things go hand in glove together. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important. And, and I think it's becoming um, it, it's becoming more rare as, as we go along. I think we're sort of getting caught up in so many new technology and new ways of doing things, whereas I think we just got to keep things simple and, uh, yeah, big believer in that. No, that's cool. Well, Andrew, thanks for being so generous with your time. It's been really fun to No worries. It's been good to talk, man. But where can people uh, find more about you? Oh, it's probably a couple of ways. I mean, one, LinkedIn's always good. Um, so, yeah, certainly jump on to, to LinkedIn and, um, yeah, look my details up on there. I've also just um, post-finishing up with a heat, um, just started my own uh, sports consultancy um, brand, which is Play uh, Sports Marketing. So you can go to play, P-L-A-Y, sportsmarketing.com. Um Pretty basic, uh, just a splash page there at the moment. But um, yeah, if you click on the, the the link there, you'll come through to me on the email. So yeah, um, it's probably the best way to go about it. Man, that's great. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on. No, it's great to speak with you, Dan. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed it, mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of DSR Branding Presents. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. Hit subscribe on your podcast app and stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you're listening on an Apple podcast, can I ask you a quick favor, please? I'd love a five-star review. It not only makes me feel special, but it helps other people like you find this podcast. We always appreciate good feedback. So if you enjoyed it, please share it with your network and tag me on LinkedIn or Instagram or send me an email. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. I hope this episode has inspired you to think differently.